I'm Jesse Thorne, host of Bullseye, inviting you to a live taping of my show with my pal, actor and comedian, Paul Shear. It's June 13th at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at laist.com slash events. On Inheriting, Bao Trong was born in the U.S., but he longs for Vietnam, a country his father left behind. Being homesick for a, a place that's never been home. So how does he tell his dad that? Listen to Inheriting from LAS Studios and the NPR Network, wherever you get your podcasts. It's Air Talk here on LAS 89.3 on air and live streaming right now on Instagram at LAS Official. Austin Cross with you on this Friday. As always, thank you so much for hanging out this morning. Coming up, we are combining Food Friday with our week-long series on love. And with wedding season right around the corner, we are going cake tasting. You and me, bring your fork. Our friends at Sweet Pea Cakery LA have brought in seven. This is like a record for us on Food Friday. Seven cakes for us to try. I hope we get through all of them. But you know that's going to be so great. So stick around for that. But we start with the death of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. He was Russian President Putin's biggest domestic adversary of the past decade. Here's a clip of Navalny in the 2022 documentary about him titled Navalny, uh, which went on to win the Oscar for Best Documentary Feature. Alexei, if you are arrested and thrown in prison or the unthinkable happens and you're killed, what message do you leave behind to the Russian people? Um, uh, my message for the uh, situation when I'm killed is very simple, not give up. Navalny goes on to say in Russia that the Russian people are not allowed to give up and that if they decide to kill him, that means their efforts are strong and that they have power even though they're being oppressed. He also encourages them to utilize their power, not be inactive because the only thing needed for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing. With me to discuss is Daniel Rohr. He directed the award-winning documentary Navalny. Daniel, thank you so much for being with us. Hello. You spent so much time with him for this film. Can you give us a window into what that time looked like, but also how this news is impacting you? Because I am sure it is difficult. I appreciate you having me on. When I found out early this morning um, that Navalny had passed away, that he'd been killed in prison, I was shocked. Um, as you as you heard from the clip you just played, it, it maybe shouldn't have been a surprise. This was something that we were all thinking about as we were making the film. It's something that Navalny, having survived previous assassination attempts, certainly was thinking about. Yet in spite of that, there was something about the news this morning that in, in addition to just leaving me feeling gutted and angry, I was also so surprised. Why Why now? Why in this moment? Um, Navalny was a guy who was charismatic and funny um, and, you know, would want to just sit around, have a beer and talk about politics or filmmaking or whatever he was interested in in that moment. Um, and it really does feel for me that a light has gone out in this world. And I think that this loss will re- reverberate. Um, for decades and decades to come. Talking right now with Daniel Rohr. He directed the documentary Navalny, came out in 2022, award-winning documentary. Um, I think that, you know, a lot of people know the name and they know his opposition to Vladimir Putin. 
But there's so much to this story. And so you shine a big light on all of it in your film. But for those who don't know the full story, what should people know in your view about Navalny's background and some of the things that really led up to this point? Well, I think the most important thing to know is what motivated Navalny. Alexei Navalny was someone who had this steadfast commitment to ridding Russia of this necrotic, cancerous regime, this rotting, festering regime that is led by Vladimir Putin. He wanted to usher in what he called the beautiful Russia of the future, a Russia that was democratic, a Russia that was free, that was free of corruption, which is a problem that plagues the country. Um, and he wanted to introduce, reintroduce Russia to this global community in this 21st century. That was the dream he had for his country. And of course, going up against an authoritarian strongman like Vladimir Putin is very tricky work. And the personal danger that, that he took on as a result of his activism um, was immense. He survived assassination attempts in the past, um, with the most glaring example being the, the assassination attempt in um, 2021, uh, 2020, which was the catalyst right. uh, of our documentary. Yeah. Um, he was a fun guy. Uh, he loved to laugh. Um, he loved to debate. Um, and I know that if he were here right now, he would say, okay, everyone stop crying. We're going to raise a shot, take a shot of vodka, and we're going to move on because the work continues. Take this anger, take this bitterness and disappointment and sadness, and let's channel it into action. As long as this regime continues, we have work to do. And, uh, and that's a message that I hope the world hears today. I mean, something that comes out in your documentary, as he says, there was a point when he thought that he had become well-known enough that it would be very difficult to kill him. Then after that well-known assassination attempt, he said, okay, I was very wrong. And when he was asked in that clip that we just played earlier, our senior producer, Matt, points out that it's interesting that, that Navalny's response was, my message when I am killed. Do you get the sense that Obviously, he knew the danger of the task that he was trying to undertake. Do you think that there was a part of him that had accepted the the high possibility, considering what's happened to other uh, outspoken critics of Vladimir Putin, the, the likelihood that this could very well be the outcome? Well, Navalny was a smart man. He understood the danger that he put himself in, but it's not as if he he had some death wish. This was a guy who loved life. Um, this is a guy who loved his, his family, his daughter, his son, his wife, Yulia. Um, um, this is not the outcome that he, he wanted, and I don't think this is the outcome that he thought would, would happen. Um, he, he genuinely believed in, 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 in sort of the continuity of his mission in his life and that he would get out of prison, and, and he was motivated by that shimmering, Russia of the future, that beautiful Russia of the future. Um, but of course, we all understood the danger. He was not naive. He he lived with both eyes wide open. Um, and, you know, as we grieve and and we sort of pick up the pieces, I, I really am left with this sense of mission. Um, and I know that millions and millions of disillusioned Russians will feel similarly. Talking right now with Daniel Rohr. He directed the 2022 uh, Oscar-winning documentary about Navalny. Did you stay in contact with uh, Navalny's team or his family after that documentary? Yes, absolutely. I, I have a, a great love 
for his family. They're they're absolutely wonderful. Um, his daughter Yulia and his wife Yulia and his daughter Dasha, um, both were tearing up the dance floor at my wedding. Um, I love them both dearly, and I am uh, you know just gutted um, for them um, and and for the country and for the world. Um, you know, after the Oscars last year, um, two weeks after that, my wife and I got married. And so it was this whirlwind couple weeks. Navalny wrote me this really, really wonderful letter, um, which is very special because it's hard for him to get letters out into the world. Uh, and, you know, it's now something that I will cherish forever. Um, but in it, he, he was just uh, had a lot of gratitude for what we were able to create together in spite of the fact that he's never seen the movie. Um, and now I believe the film will take on um, a new meaning um, uh, as people watch it for decades and decades to come. I know that this is about your personal relationship with his family, but have you had a chance to speak with them since hearing the news of his death? Uh, I haven't. Um, I briefly communicated this morning with Christo Grosev, uh, who is uh, one of the uh, lead subjects in the film. He's the the Bellingcat journalist, mm. um, and he, he and I were both sort of in shock processing, you know, that which cannot be processed, which seems so unsurprising yet so shocking. Um, and I think that, you know, everyone will take a beat and grieve, and and then these feelings and these emotions will be transformed into action. You know, Daniel, I so appreciate you making the time to talk today. Just before we let you go, is there anything that you want people to know or remember about this man that you spoke to, your friend, who became your friend, uh, anything that you would want to leave us with? Yeah, I, I think I touched on it a little earlier. I like to think of what Navalny might say if he were here right now. And, you know, he would tell everyone, all right, no crying, chin up, have a shot of vodka, and let's get back to work. You know, that's at that that was his motivation in life was his mission. And it has never seemed more vital. Um, you know, as we focused on this war in Ukraine, as we focused on the degradation of Russia and its international standing, and rampant corruption, um, Navalny's work has never seen more seemed more vital. And, and more than that, Putin's regime has never been in greater peril. Um, and, I, and, you know, they they are weak. The walls are closing in. And I think and I hope that Navalny's murder um, will galvanize support uh, for the opposition, however, whatever shape it takes in the future, um, in the months and years to come. That's Daniel Rohr, director of the 2022 Oscar-winning documentary film Navalny. It is available on the streaming platform Max right now. Daniel, thank you so much for making the time this morning. Thank you. Also with us is Regina Smith, professor of political science at Indiana University and author of Elections, Protest, and Authoritarian Regime Stability, Russia, 2008 to 2020. Professor Smith, thank you so much for making the time. Thanks for having me. I'm really happy to talk about Navalny. You know, it's so important to read everybody in on Navalny because if you follow the headlines, as I'm sure a lot of our listeners do, they've uh, watched the assassination attempt play out. They watched him go abroad before he made the choice to return home. Um, and the subsequent imprisonment, his relocation um, to the Arctic Circle. But a lot of this really connects at the beginning. Uh, over a decade ago to his investigations with FBK, which he called the Anti-Corruption Foundation. Can you talk to me a little bit about 
some of the work that he did, the investigations that he did, that really did turn some of the Russian establishment, especially Vladimir Putin, against him. Yeah, so FPK was, uh, like many things Alexei Navalny did, a very innovative approach to understanding corruption. Navalny himself trained as a lawyer, and he bought stock in companies and showed up at corrupt corporate meetings and challenged people on the board, state officials and uh, economic elites uh, with facts about corruption in their corporations. FBK went on to be sort of a platform to report corruption for ordinary Russians. And it dealt with things from potholes to poor repair of housing and other types of issues. So it was really quite a broad movement. I know that um, this is being reported on Russian media, on uh, Russia Today. I see it has uh, made a headline there. But what kind of information access are people getting, you think, at this point, um, given that he was a figure that the establishment, that Vladimir Putin actively tried to uh, push out of the public eye as much as possible? Uh, How does this information spread in a country where there is so much media control? So there is a lot of media control. The report of his death was announced two minutes after it happened by the prison system, uh, as far as we can tell, right, allegedly. Um, But this is, people are getting information through social media, new media channels. People have VPNs and they use them to check Western sources or sources banned in Russia. And we do know that some of this media is getting through because we're starting to see small protests spring up around Mm -hmm. Russia, uh, marking Navalny's death. I know there are so many laws that were changed as well since the Ukraine war. I know it had become illegal in Russia to uh, push any sort of narrative that ran contrary to what the military said. I also know that there were some laws implemented that limited who could run uh, as president against Vladimir Putin, which essentially looks like heading into his next election. He doesn't really have any real challengers. How do people, uh, from what you've seen, find hope at a time like this where it looks as though, you know, now the main opposition leader is gone. There's a series of laws in place that that suppress information, the way that information spreads, and who can even try to enter the political system. Do you know where people are finding hope right now in Russia? Um, it's, It's a really interesting question, and it's an important one, because you're summing up the full range of repression that Russians are feeling right now. In addition to all these new laws, there are many people now being charged under those laws, being charged with treason, as one of uh, Navalny's compatriots has been, uh, Kazimirsa, and sentenced to 25 years in prison. Mm. So there's an incredible amount of fear. People often ask why more Russians aren't protesting war, and is it exactly because of this level of repression? And I think hope is... um, found uh, to the extent that it is in everyday life and personal pride that often looks like ignoring the terrible conditions of Russia, but uh, such as um, being proud of your work or showing up at your work every day, investing in your personal life. 
You know, as people continue to process, and you've mentioned some of the demonstrations, which are extremely risky operations in Russia right now, what do you think Alexei Navalny's legacy will be among the Russian people and even within the international community? So Navalny has always been a very interesting figure. People criticize him widely. You can see that on Twitter and Western sources. You can see it in blog posts. He was a flawed human being. But his legacy was twofold, I think. One was a series of tactics or strategies to work within the political system in a legal way to sort of contest Putin and to express opposition. So we saw this last month when thousands of people stood online in sub-zero temperatures to sign uh, a registration document for an opposition candidate to run for president. That wasn't successful, but it did show or give visibility to people who are against the war because this was the one candidate who really had articulated anti-war positions. And I just want to say that I think the second legacy of Navalny is a new generation of activists that we see uh, taking incredible risks inside of Russia or as part of the wartime migration outside of Russia to challenge the regime in various ways. So that, and in our interviews with these young activists, they all referenced Navalny as the starting point of their own political interest and political engagement. That's Regina Smith, professor of political science at Indiana University and author of Elections, Protest, and Authoritarian Regime Stability, Russia 2008 through 2020. Professor Smith, thank you so much for making the time to talk with us on this day. Thanks for reporting this story. This is Air Talk on a Friday. I'm Austin Cross. When we come back, we are going to dig into five decades of groundbreaking television, ranging from Soul Train to Blackish and beyond. We are talking about Black TV. Stick around. Air Talk is back in 60 seconds. Support for LAist comes from Apple TV Plus, presenting Monarch Legacy of Monsters. Starring Kurt Russell, Wyatt Russell, Anna Sawai, and Godzilla. Father and son acting duo Kurt Russell and Wyatt Russell play older and younger versions of Lee Shaw, the founder of Monarch, a secretive organization connected to Godzilla. As actors and team players, Kurt and Wyatt have a lot in common. We've had a similar life. His game was hockey, mine was baseball. One point in our lives, it was how we were going to make our living. To apply that to our business, I don't know how to look at life other than as a, as no. a win, win, lose ball, ball game. I think we, we're the type of people that like, we want to be impact players. And you want to help your club win every time you go out there. Whether that club's a movie set, a story you're telling, on the ice, on the baseball field. I think we realize that we are much more alike than we are different. <laughs> Here's executive producer Chris Black. I think it should be about this family. I think it should be about secrets. It should be about a pair of siblings discovering each other and discovering that their father could not be trusted and was not the man he said he was. That's what brings them together and sends them on a quest, if you will, to find out the truth about the family and their father. And it's that journey that takes you into the world of the monsters. For Kurt and Wyatt Russell, 
Being so close helped them sort out how to both play the same character. We worked together quite a bit. We worked together well. What's been your most favorite part of the show? When I was working with you on trying to figure Lee Shaw out, <laughs> yeah. you know, and then taking it to the guys and saying, what do you think? Uh, who is this guy? What, where's he going to go? Where did he come from? And doing that, doing that with you, I've, I've actually never done that really with much with another actor, but I've never played the same, the same role. <laughs> <laughs> so that was fun. TV Line says Monarch Legacy of Monsters is incredible and Empire roars that it's epic. More on Monarch Legacy of Monsters at fyc.appletvplus.com.